Rock and Roll's Greatest Failure. Call Baby That's Really Me by John Otway. Read by John Otway. Call Baby That's Really Me. Chapter 16. When Track released Louisa on a Horse, it was immediately apparent that there were not thousands of Otway fans desperate for Otway product. The sales figures of that record show that a few more copies were sold than the number of addresses on John's newsletter list. But as most of us know, 50 record sales don't make a hit. Before these sales had time to register though, the powers that be at Track came to see a live show. It was time to pull out all the stops. The show they chose was at the Roundhouse in London, where Otway and Barrett fans could not be counted on one hand, because there were none. Coaches were laid on from Oxford, Luton, Aylesbury and Bognor Regis, and Otway printed up a thousand handouts to give out at all the gigs to advertise the fact that they really needed help on this. He was good at getting us all on his side, an old Oxford fan remembers, he used to say things like, Now, when I do this gig, I know you don't know the song, but if you can get everybody to applaud loudly when I sing the first line of the third song, as if it's one of your favourites, that'll really impress the record company. So, sure enough, he sings the first line, and he's got the whole audience at it. He sings one line of this song no one's heard before, and the place is going bananas. And it's a couple of minutes before he can carry on with the song. We all used to go along with things like that, because it was as if we were in on something. And it was good fun to watch the bemused faces of the music biz people. Yeah, I remember doing that, says John. It was a good laugh. They'd come up to you afterwards and tell you how much they liked the third number we did. Track records were impressed by the show and still felt they were onto a good thing. Willie used this opportunity to persuade them to buy a van for their new artists. You can't have your new stars pushing a coach to every gig, Willie explained. And so they managed to get a blue, two-year-old ex-police transit, the first decent transport they had ever owned. And it even looked quite smart. But not for long. In the track offices, Otway spotted a badge-making machine in the corner. Cor, can I borrow that to make some Otway badges? He asked excitedly. And so, over the next few gigs, Many a punter would be wearing a badge that said, I like John Otway even before he was a star. However, fewer were wearing the alternative badge. Wouldn't it be nice to go to bed with Otway? When the record finally came out, Track realised that sales would not recoup the cost of pressing them, let alone pay for a new van. They quite liked their new signing, however, and decided to keep them on for a while. They felt they might have heard something in the Upway and Barrett repertoire that could just be a hit record. It's about time we made an LP, the duo told Track. We can't afford to do an LP when you're only selling 50 records. Ah, that's because I'm probably an album artist, John told them. Rubbish, they said. Look, we'll give you the money for the studio time to make a single. We suggest you do that really free song. It sounds catchy and more like hit record than anything else you've got. That song is not a hit record, Otway told Willie as they drove home in the new van. 
Racing cars is more like a hit. You know how the audiences go wild when you ride around on the slide guitar and crash it at the end of the song? Now that's a hit. They got Baron Anthony to produce racing cars for them and took it back to the record company. We thought you were going to record really free, Track said when Otway and Barrett played them their new recording. This might be a great live number, but it's not a hit record. Go away and think again. Meanwhile, Track had started getting them higher profile gigs in London. The main one of these was at the Speakeasy Club in Margaret Street in the heart of the West End whose clientele was made up of music business people, from record companies and agents, to stars and disc jockeys, and the odd drunk music journalist. Most of the bands that played there were more or less ignored by those who frequented the place, and so, as a gig, it was not thought of as the greatest place in the world to play. However, it was almost impossible to ignore Otway and Barrett, and if you did, you did so at your peril. It was quite likely that Otway's size 11 shoes would be standing in your very expensive pint of lager as he leapt four feet onto your table, or that you got hit in the eye by a flying button from the shirt he was ripping open. Some of the people who saw Otway and Barrett there were to play a large role in this story and have a big effect on their career. One of these was Tony Bramwell, who was working for Polydor Records, and another was Jeff Griffin, the producer of both the BBC's In Concert on radio and the old Grey Whistle Test on TV. Pete Townsend came down to see the pair of them playing at the speakeasy and ended up a little worse for wear. He wrote the song Who Are You after his experiences that night. The situation with track records was getting worse. Otway and Barrett were as adamant about doing an LP as track were adamant about them doing Poor Baby That's Really Free. And then if that went well, think about an album. John and Willie decided to go and record an album anyway and take the finished thing back to the record company. They'll see I'm right about being an album artist when they hear it, John said. Apart from the four Townsend produced tracks, the rest of that first album was recorded at Chalk Farm Studios in February 1977. When it was finally handed to Track Records the following month, Track had had enough. You can keep the van. You can have the rights back to all the tracks we own. The only thing we want back is a badge-making machine, they were told. And Otway and Barrett realised that their record company were just as adamant as they were about the LP. So there they were, with this finished LP and no record company. I'd borrowed a lot of money from Chris France and people like that to pay for the studio time, said John. I told them it was all right as they would get the money back from track records as soon as we handed in the tape. So it was a bit embarrassing to get fired from them and have to tell everybody they'd just have to wait. John and Willie decided that the only course of action was to follow their normal tradition of solving problems by borrowing even more money and putting the album out themselves. The figures involved were high. To do the LP properly, they would need to borrow £6,000 which means John's total debt to date would be over £10,000. In the end, John's father agreed to remortgage the house in order to finance the record. His parents had, by now, completely given up hope that their son would ever do anything sensible for a living. He was working about two nights a week with Willie, 
and, at last, actually getting paid for doing what he really liked. It could be worse, they thought to themselves. He could be a criminal or a drug addict. He's a cheerful, optimistic boy. And he's worked hard at doing this. He even had the record played on the radio once or twice. They even felt a bit sorry for him. Getting fired from his first proper record company after working so hard to make a record for them. Or Wayne Barrett decided to call their new record label Extract because they were now X-Track. The album was given the very original title of John Otway and Wild Willie Barrett and the album artists set about their task of organising labels, pressings and sleeves. The thing that takes the longest in record production is in fact the sleeves. The printing of these can take anything up to a month. John and Willie are not the most patient of people and worked out that they could halve this waiting period by using self-adhesive stickers on plain white sleeves. Even though this meant sticking 4,000 stickers on 2,000 LPs by hand, they both felt it was worth it to save that fortnight's wait. The media in general are well aware of how badly artists are treated by record companies and how often these sensitive creative people are either ripped off or mistreated by the men with money. The case of Otway and Barrett being ripped off by their company attracted a great deal of sympathy from both the press and the radio. Small independent labels forming to release the music the big record companies would not touch was just starting to happen. 1977 was punk's biggest year and the major labels had no idea which bands to sign. They all sounded awful and when a major label tried to pick an awful band themselves they invariably picked the wrong one. On the release of their first LP, John and Willie managed to get features in Melody Maker and Sounds, and reviews on several radio programmes, as well as news items on the new label and the Fired From Track story. Jeff Griffin, to help them get underway with the new label, gave them a Radio 1 in concert programme, which was broadcast the day after the album was released. This was major publicity for the duo, and its effect on sales was dramatic. John's father, who had just retired, took to selling by phone and sold 500. A couple of record distributors got in touch, and the first batch of 2,000 LPs was sold within a week. There were times over those few weeks, said John, that I'd wished we'd waited for the sleeves to be printed. We ended up sticking something like 8,000 stickers on those LPs in about three weeks. Extract Records only lasted a month. It was one of the very first independent labels in the country. But this small company with one successful record was soon to be involved in a takeover bid by one of the biggest companies in the land. Mm -hmm. 